I love this time of year. A day a year where it's dedicated to giving thanks. That's just a good thing, you know? It doesn't have to be an explicitly Christian holiday in order for it to be kingdom. That's pretty awesome. So I hope you enjoy your Thanksgiving uh, coming up shortly. I'm going to have a whole bunch of people over at my house. We're going to feast. Thank Jesus together. So hopefully uh, you're spending it with friends and family. Um, we're going to jump into the word here. Turn to Matthew. We're going to get back into the book of Matthew. Chapter 9 is where we're going to start. We've been going on a journey through the book of Matthew, as you know. We, uh, we started out at the beginning of the year, and my commitment to you was that we were going to get through it in a year. So I'm preaching 18 chapters today. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we're not going to get it through it in a year, but, uh, but it's about the journey, not the destination. Amen? Amen. All right. Something like that. Spiritualize my weakness and my deception to the church. <laughs> all right, Matthew chapter 9. Let's jump in. Verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to, to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Jesus Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So to back up just a bit, to give a bit of context of where we are, Jesus has been doing ministry all around this region, and he's been doing amazing things, things that the people in that region had never thought of or, or dreamed could happen. He would go to, to people... You know, the, the old times in the law, if you went to a leper and you touched a leper, you were wildly unclean. All of a sudden, you were cast out from the community. You had to go through a cleansing process. If you didn't get leprosy itself, then you would be in this, like, time of cleansing that you'd have to sit there kind of in the penalty box. Jesus comes and he flips things upside down. He's healing people on the Sabbath. He's touching the unclean people. He's eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. He's doing all of this stuff that the religious leaders at the time and what would conventional wisdom would say, this is, this is not the way that you do God's will. It's completely different. And in, in this case, the disciples are walking around with him for years, watching him do all this stuff. And I've had so many times where I've dreamed about being one of those disciples, right? You get to walk around with Jesus and you get to hear the words coming out of his mouth, and you get to see him do the stuff. You know, you get to, you gotta make it real again. You know, if you're in a culture where you just don't touch leprosy, and he comes up and he like grabs leprosy, this guy with like crazy leprosy, and he says, be healed, and instantly the 
God, act, like active God in their history, really active all the time through the prophets, through Moses, through, through the, the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through David, through Solomon. There's all of these different periods where God is super active, and then 400 years where the people of God feel like, wow, he's just like, what's going on? Why is he not speaking to us? And so you can imagine what happens after 400 years feeling like God is silent. Your religion would feel like kind of dead. I don't know how passionate you could be in this case where you're just kind of like reading the law and doesn't feel like God's really doing anything new. And, you know, they're kind of like just trudging along. And it's in this environment where Jesus comes on the scene and the biggest move of God in all of history happens, breaks into this 400 years of silence and breaks in. And so you can imagine the people of the time just being like, oh my gosh, is this, is this the greatest prophet? Is this the one that we've been waiting for? Is this God forgiving us? Is this God coming back to us? Is this God like, showing us through this man coming that he favors his people again? And so the disciples get to go around. They watch Jesus doing this from town to town where he's just doing these incredible things. And he says that the kingdom is near. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now, he's declaring that the kingdom is near and the harvest is plentiful in the biggest drought in the history of Israel. He just sees differently than everybody else, right? Like at this time, nobody else would be like, the harvest is so rich. Look at this abundance that we have here. People feel dry. People feel like they don't know what's going on. Like he's speaking something out that almost nobody else would agree with at the time that the harvest is plentiful, that God's work is ripe, and that there's fruit on the vines just waiting to be picked. Like for those who can see like me, Jesus is saying, let's send workers out into this harvest field and let's just like go and collect the bounty that God has for us at this time. It's completely different than what people would be saying if you asked them before Jesus had made this statement. It took a lot of faith for the disciples even, to understand that Jesus was saying something that was true. So he's speaking this thing out like, God's work is ripe and ready right now. Look around you. You probably wouldn't judge the same, but it is. Trust me. God's work is ripe and ready. And then Jesus comes in and he starts doing this crazy work everywhere. And then in, verse, and then in chapter 10, we see this shift where it goes from just watching Jesus do these things to watching the disciples do these things. Now, you need to get this. Like, imagine if you were following Jesus around for a year. You're watching him do all this crazy stuff. You're like, this is awesome. This is what I was meant to live for, right? Like, I was meant to follow this guy. Every time he speaks, my heart burns. Every time we go out, it's, a, it's like, I know that something cool is going to happen, even when we go into the darkest places. And you feel like your life is there as one of these disciples. And then in verse 10, he turns to you and says, hey, you know all that stuff that I've been doing? It's your turn now. Like, now you're not just a, uh, somebody who is just following me around and watching me do this stuff. Now it's your turn. He calls the 12 disciples. He gives them authority to drive out demons, to heal every disease and sickness, and he sends them out and says, raise the dead, heal the sick, cleanse the leper, drive out demons freely you've received, now freely give. This would be crazy as a disciple, right? Your whole life you think you're doing, you're right there, you think you're feeling the pinnacle of what God has for you, and then he tells you, okay, now it's your turn. 
I don't know about you, but I would feel like terrified partially. I'd be like, yeah, 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 like I believe you, you can do that stuff. But like, don't just tell me that like now that I have the authority and that I can go do this stuff. You can imagine them walking away from Jesus two by two as they go away and they're like, are we really going to do this thing? Because the next step is for me to like grab the next dude I see with leprosy. And if that doesn't go right, this could not go well for me. Right? Or you like interrupt a funeral. Picture this. You like interrupt a funeral. You like burst in and you're like, here we go. Right? You lay your hands on the casket or whatever. If that doesn't turn out well, that's an embarrassing moment. And so there's like a lot of, there's a lot of faith, both because of the context of what this is spoken into, but also because there's this shift that's happening where, where Jesus, in a minute, he speaks over their life and he said, before you didn't have authority, now you have authority. That was the only difference. Before they were just disciples, and now we see in verse 2, the first time he ever uses the word apostles. And apostles means sent out ones. It means someone who's commissioned with authority and then sent out with that authority to do the work of the one sending you out. That's what the word apostle means. And so for the first time in the scriptures, we see it go from the 12 disciples to the 12 apostles. And the only thing that shifted was Jesus said, now authority has been given to you. That's all that changed. In this one moment, Jesus draws near and says, you now have authority. And they go out, and this life that they thought was just so awesome, and they thought was like as good as it could get walking around with Jesus, just got exponentially crazier and better. And you're like, wow, I thought I knew what my mission was before, and that was to support Jesus wherever he went. And now my mission is to do exactly the stuff that he was doing. Before I was supposed to tell people all the stuff that he could do and, and tell testimony about who Jesus was, and now it's time for me to create testimonies. Now it's to me to be the one who's the miracle worker in the name of Jesus, under his authority, as a delegated one sent out from the king as one with a royal ring, a royal signet ring, saying, I have the king's authority to do whatever I see fit in the name of the king and going out and doing it. And so their life changes in that moment, and they go out. I want to talk about another story uh, that I was reading this week, re week that just totally rocked me, and then we'll come back and we'll tie these couple of stories together. In order to do so, I want to share some biblical context. So this might be helpful for some of you who kind of jump around the Old Testament, and you're like, what the heck am I reading? How does this fit into anything and like don't have an outline or a structure to plug stuff in, I'm about to give you an outline or a structure that you can then plug in the different stories to. So if you're so inclined and you want to write them down, that's totally cool. If not, you can just listen. So quick Bible overview for context. The first thing we see in the Bible is the creation story. God comes into the world. He says, let there be light. Boom, the universe is blasted into existence. Many believe the Big Bang happens, right? Boom, let there be light. <laughs> Stars fly into existence. The universe starts expanding. After that, we see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see the forefathers. We see these, these patriarchs. And they come in, and, and on the heels of them, the nation of Israel starts. And we see the first promise to the people of God who will believe 
The father of faith, Abraham, comes on the scene and he says, I believe in you, God, even though I have no outside reason to believe in you. And it says it was credited to him righteousness because he believed. It's the first time in the Bible that we see somebody declared righteous purely because they believed in God. So he becomes the father of faith, and this lineage out of him becomes the people of God, becomes the people of Israel. Then we see the, the, the people of Israel in captivity. We see them in Egypt. Moses comes on the scene, and so we'll call this the Exodus. Moses comes on the scene, and he uh, frees the people. They're in bondage. God hears their cry. Moses comes as a deliverer, and he comes as a foreshadow of Jesus himself. He comes into enslaved people, and he releases them. So that's the exodus. They go into the desert. They're walking around in the desert for 40 years. And then finally they go into the promised land in the book of Joshua. And they enter into this land that God has promised them. It says you're released from captivity, you're released from slavery. Now you get to go into the promised land that I've prepared for you. And I want you to set up there. I want you to build a life for yourself there. And as they're there, there's these things called judges. So this is the period of the judges and books of, book of judges. When they're in there, there's no real government, right? There's, there's this kind of like decentralized, loose confederation type thing that's happening there. And over each little kind of, you know, block of people, there's a judge. So there's some semblance of order. If something goes wrong, there's this person that can rule, but there's no centralized thing. That's the period of the judges. And then we go into the period of the United Kingdom. We see Israel, even though God doesn't want them to have a king, he doesn't want them to have a central ruler. He wants to be their king and their God. They refuse. They said, no, we want a king. No, we want a king. No, we want a king. So God picks the best person in the land. Turns out it's this dude, Saul. He's tall and handsome. And he comes and he's their king. And then we see you, the United Kingdom. We see David. We see Solomon. And, and Israel is thriving under these really godly leaders. And under Solomon, it comes to this pinnacle, this, like, this climax where Israel is just the envy of all the nations. And all the nations are looking at what's going on in Solomon's life, and they're like, it is crazy what's going on in your kingdom. It's, it's, it's flowing in abundance in every direction. And God's point in doing this was like, watch what, a godly, what happens to a nation when a godly ruler, when a godly king sits there. Even though I don't want you to have a king, I'm still going to bless this as best as I can. And so there's this great united kingdom after that, there's some strife. After Solomon, his, uh, his predecessors take over, and it becomes the period of the divided kingdom. This is the book of First and Second Kings. And so you see that the, the nation of Israel is divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And man, they just go through a hard time. They're constantly in war. They're constantly losing battles. They're constantly just like protecting their land. It's not a good time till the pinnacle in the book of Daniel, what we see is Nebuchadnezzar comes in. This is called the, the Babylonian exile. Somebody comes in, this dude named Nebuchadnezzar comes in and just basically like takes him down. And again, the people of God are moved out of Jerusalem. They're in exile. They're dispersed all over the land. They're under foreign rule. And they're like, man, God, like, what is going on? How are we under foreign rule again? The story that I'm going to tell you is right in the midst of the exile. So the people are tired. They're under foreign rule again. Life is not good under foreign rule. You're at the whim of whatever, you know, whatever Nebuchadnezzar wants. He can just say one day, like, you know, I'm not into the, the Jewish people today, and they're going to be my slaves and it's no good. And in fact, he destroyed the temple. He did horrible things. Life was not good under them. 
And so what we're picking up is the story of Esther. It's about 450 B.C., and there's this king that's ruling named King Ahasuerus. He's married to this queen named Queen Veshti, and the Jewish people under this king are not doing very well. He's got this guy who's his number two in command named Haman. And Haman is walking out of the king's castle one day. He's got tons of authority under the king. He's like the second command. And he's walking out of the king's castle, and this dude Mordecai is the only one out of everybody to not bow down to him. And so he hates Mordecai. It's like, who is this dude who's, who's got the gall to not bow down to me when I'm the number two in the land? Right? So you have a wicked king on the throne. You have this number two who's kind of a head case. It's like hundreds of people bowing down to him, but one you know, doesn't, and he's like, okay, you know, bad day, whatever. Wants to go after this guy. And that's where we pick up the story. So Queen Veshti does this stupid thing where the king beckons her and she doesn't come. You just don't do that in the time. And so he, he's like, I don't need you as a queen anymore. You're gone. You're out. And now I'm searching the land for a new queen. So the people of God, again, are in a rough state. Things are not going well. You look around and you're like, this looks like God has forsaken us. This is not a great time in Israel's history. And right then, there's this kind of beauty pageant thing that happens where the king is choosing his new queen. And so they take all of the best women from the land. They go out into the entire land and they pick all the best women. They bring them into the... And by the way, like, I'm not saying this is good. I know there's a lot of people like bristling in here of like, this is just so wrong in so many ways. I know. I agree. It was the culture. It needs to be said, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's cool, right? The Bible's the real deal. It doesn't tell it like it should be in human history. It tells it like it was. This is real. doesn't mean that God liked it. It just means that this is how it was going. So he brings in all of these women. They get all prepped up. It takes six months for them to get preparation before the king will even, like, they go before the king. So they're, like, eating the right foods. They're getting, like, all the fancy oils, like, all of this stuff. Finally, this girl Esther gets chosen out of all the women in the land. There's a, there's, a, there's a number of them, but Esther is one of them, and God gives her great favor in the sight of the king. And Esther is Mordecai's niece. So Mordecai, again, is the dude who won't bow down that Haman wanted to, you know, like, hit, hit, kill just because he wouldn't bow down. And so now there's this... Jewish woman who's now the queen. So she goes through a process and she gets selected queen. So now the, the, the wicked king in the land has the queen, Esther, and then Esther's uncle is Mordecai. And Mordecai is this devout Jew. And so Haman, because he hates Mordecai, issues this edict out into the land that basically the Jews can get abused in a serious way. It's like okay to abuse them all over the land, and this is going to be his justification for going after Mordecai and just killing him, basically. And so again, the people of God are in this place where it seems like the worst of times, right? Like, it was bad before, right? Like, the temple's destroyed. There's no house of worship for our God. We're strewn all over the land. We don't have any real, like, rights. 
but now we can be like the enemy of everybody who wants to take advantage of us. They can just come after us. Like it just feels like it's getting worse and worse and worse. This is a horrible time in the history of Israel. But God has a plan. God has a plan that is really outlandish. Like imagine being the people of God in this time. You've got this wicked king. There's no great power in Israel. Like how, oh God, could we possibly see this turn into something that's good in the land? Like what would your hope be? What could your hope possibly be in this situation? It's not like, (laughs) I'm going to get myself into trouble here. It's not like, the Democrats just won office, and there's another party in four years. This is like a monarchy. This is like, they own all the land. They're in power. This is like, there's no competition for power. There's no time bans on this thing. This is like, bad. And you don't have anything really to look to that would give you any kind of hope. And at that point, God, out of all of the women in the land, has Esther come into the castle, become queen, and then she's sitting there and she doesn't, she doesn't know that she's meant for greatness in this moment, right? She's just a queen. She's just doing castle life. She's not trying to, you know, (laughs) there's no signal that we get that she's some like praying fasting every day and in sackcloth and ashes or devout Jew or any of this stuff. She just seems like an ordinary girl who's good looking and got picked out of the crowd to be queen. She just seems very ordinary. And it's at that moment that Mordecai goes to Esther and he says, you've got to do something. Our people are getting slaughtered across the land. You've got to go to the king and get him to change his mind. Now, meanwhile, this is fun, two eunuchs in the king's palace start to want to overtake the king. They start hatching this plan, like, hey, let's, like, let's kill him, these two eunuchs. I can see why they would want to kill him, right? (laughs) That was a better joke than you guys gave me there. Whatever, whatever, I'm moving on. So these two eunuchs, they want to kill him. (laughs) And Mordecai, he's sitting outside of the king's castle every day because he's hoping Esther will do well and he's hoping to get news of how she's doing. And he overhears these eunuchs that want to kill the king, tells Esther, Esther tells the king in the name of Mordecai, and then uh, the king finds out that it's true, kills the eunuchs, and he's safe. So like really saved the king's hide. So at this point, Esther's like, you guys need to pray and fast for me. Because if I go before the king, and he doesn't like the message that I'm bringing, he'll kill me. Like, that's the way it works there. You don't go to the king unless you're summoned. That's how much power he had. In fact, there's this funny part of it where she goes in, and she's kind of standing outside the door, and you can get the sense that she's like peeking around the corner, and the king kind of spots her in his, whatever the throne room looked like, picture a big throne up here or whatever, and he's like sitting on it. And... He extends his scepter towards Esther, and she, that's her cue to come and walk in, and she comes and she, like, touches her head against the scepter, and, like, you know, if it pleases the king, I have a message for the king, if it, you know, like, the deference is crazy, 
And so she comes in, and she's terrified. She's thinking that this could be my last day. And so he tells the king, he tell, she tells the king what's going on, and the king is like, I had no idea this was, oh, actually, I'm sorry. Nope. She's so terrified that she says, I'd love to cook a feast for you. Can I hold a feast for you and Haman? You and your second in charge. And you get the sense that she's just terrified. And so she holds a feast, and then she holds another feast. Like at the end of it, you, you, I get the sense that she's like, should I do it? Should I? Actually, tomorrow I wanted to hold another feast for you. <laughs> and she's like, okay, like, you know, yes, okay, we'll do it. And, um, and she goes, and the next day she, t- she tells the king that this thing is going on. And the king is mad. The king is, is mad about this. The same night, Haman builds this big um, contraption to then hang Mordecai from. He's like ready to go. He's ready to, to kill this dude finally. So he's got this big contraption. He's going to hang Mordecai the next day. And Esther's telling the king this story about what's going on with her people and that she's a Jew and that she'd love for him to, to give the release. And so right about the same time, uh, the king issues Esther what she's asked for. So she goes and risks her neck, and then the king says, you can have what you want, I'll send an edict through the land. But Mordecai is still about to get hung. And so God gives the king this dream, or no, 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 God, God prevents the king from being able to sleep that night. And the king remembers, who was that person who saved my, my butt like a few weeks ago? And, and he finds out, and he goes, oh, it was Mordecai. And so he brings Haman in in the morning, and he goes, he goes hey, I want to send a horse for this guy. I want to put a royal robe on him. I want to put a crown on his head, and I want to give him all this stuff, and then I want to ride him through the town as the greatest honor that I can imagine uh, for, this, for this guy. And Haman's like, awesome. I, I silently think that maybe Haman thinks he's, it's, it's him. Like, hey, I've been governing well. Like, maybe it's me. And he goes, and it's Mordecai. And he's like, oh my gosh, right? Like his heart splits and he's like, you're kidding me. How is this possible of all the people, all this stuff? And so he goes and he does what, what the king says and Mordecai gets, you know, whatever it looked like through, through the, what's that? <laughs> That's how I ride a horse, right? <laughs> you got your royal robe and your crown, you're cruising through the town. It's like, Yes. And so, um, so Esther, so the king finds out that Haman was going to go after, that Haman's the one that put this thing on in the land. And so Haman ends up getting hung from his contraption. Mordecai becomes second in command, and Esther becomes this honored queen where she is like, you know, the king loves her, and she gets all this land and all this other stuff. It is the craziest story, right? Like, only in the Bible. Only in the Bible. But the thing that struck me as I read this is I was thinking about what the people of Israel must have been experiencing, and then I was thinking about the plan of God and how stupid on paper this plan seems. Like, let's have a beauty contest. Let's have Esther win it. And let's have Mordecai, like, be hated by this guy. 
but he's only hated by this guy in order for this guy to do this stupid thing so that then this guy can be hanged and the people of God can be released and prosperity can go through the land. It's like this crazy, like who comes up with this stuff kind of a plan. And in the first story with the disciples, God does this amazing work when it looks like he's forsaken the land Jesus, the king of kings, comes on the scene and he breaks into this time of desperation when it looks like God has forsaken everybody and he comes and does the greatest work of God the land has ever seen. And then in the story of Esther, we see this wicked king who's the one who actually decreed that the people of God should be slaughtered. It was through his, like, his second command influenced him to do it, but he had to issue the thing. And so imagine if you're the people of the land, like we're sitting under this person This person just issued this edict, and now we're under it. God, like, what are you going to do? And God hatches this ridiculous plan, and this great move of God comes through, where right after this, they return from exile because Ezra and Nehemiah come right, right after this, and they rebuild the temple under wicked kings. In fact, the beginning or the middle of of, uh, of, Ezra, The beginning of Ezra, let me see if I wrote it down. Shucks. Oh, yeah, I did. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, not king of the Jews. Cyrus, king of Persia, this is the one who's holding them in captivity. King of Persia, to proclaim through the land and put it into writing, This, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem, in Judea. What? Like, this is the wicked king holding them in captivity, the people of God. And all of a sudden, it's like the Lord moves his heart in some way, And he's like, you know what we should do? We should rebuild that temple. You know the God of Israel? Like, we should build him a house so that he can be worshipped. And the whole rest of this book is about how he gives hordes and hordes of gold. Nebuchadnezzar took all of this gold and silver out of the temple when he sacked it and destroyed it, and he put it in the temple of the idols of the land, these false gods that the whole nation was, was serving under. Cyrus goes in, he takes all of it out from the temples of the the, the idolatrous temples, and he goes and he puts it back in the temple of God. Like, what compelled him to do this? The book doesn't even really say. It just says that God kind of prompted his heart to do this. And when I was reading these stories, I was so struck. Because I think oftentimes in our personal lives, but honestly in our nation right now, it's hitting me harder we can get so overwhelmed with the stuff that's going on around us that says that God's not moving in this land. Both in our personal lives when it feels like nothing's going right or in our nation when, you know, in this area, not many people think that the guy that should be in office is in office in this area, right? And so it's like, what is our response when we see something like that? We look around everywhere and we're like, man, racism is blowing through the roof. Murders are up in certain pockets. 
Like, all of this stuff is going on. It seems like the church isn't that strong in certain areas. Like, what areas do we have to look to for hope in this time? And I want to say that two of the greatest biblical stories that we just read are exactly this environment. Exactly this environment. They had no reason to have hope for the land. They had no reason to have hope personally with the gnarly stuff going on in their lives. And it was in that very moment that the light breaks forth like a dawn. Jesus shows up on the scene and everything changes. It was in that exact moment that somehow God comes up with this crazy plan where Esther's the queen and Mordecai's at the gate and then Ezra, you know, Ezra follows through with this plan where Cyrus just in a moment all of a sudden says, he's probably speaking stuff he didn't even know. What, what do you mean God of heaven and earth? What do you mean that you recognize that this is the God that gave you all of your power and that now you want to honor this God? Right? Like, what is you, where did that even come from? And what I'm saying to us is that oftentimes I think that our picture of our God is far too small because we take most of our cues from the things that are going on around us. And if there's any biblical precedent for what that should tell us, it's that actually that that's probably the opportune time for God to blow on the scene. Most of the time where you see these biblical stories, whether it be Moses releasing the people from, from Exodus, or how about the cross of Christ? Is there any more disparaging moment than the one where Jesus, the Messiah that you've been following for three years, dies on a cross? And that's the moment that God uses to pivot all of history around? And so my challenge to us is pretty simple. Like, let's look at the biblical account of what God's able to do in tough situations. Whether it's 400 years of silence, or whether it's sitting under an oppressive ruler, or whether it's, man, just a bad day and you're a leper in Jesus' time, and you're like, could things get any worse? But God, he's the God of the supernatural, Right? Like the God that we serve is not the God of the logical. He's the one that says, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. If you're in despair because you're leaning on your own understanding, there's your problem. You need to repent. Whether it's something going on personally or whether it's what's going on in the nation, like, is, is God big enough to step in on the scene and do something like convincing the most powerful person in the world, just prompting their heart all of a sudden to rebuild the temple, representing God being in the center of society and having his presence dwell in the most important city and having people from all over the nations look to this thing that's happening and going like, what's going on with this? Like, God is at the center again and his ways that make the society prosper in the times of Solomon and all of this stuff. Some of the stuff you read, I hope I wrote it down, but there's this part in Esther. Check this out. The, re the Part of the reason why this is so important is because of the outcome, right? God is worthy of being worshiped and honored whether there's no great outcome or not. He is the true God and he is worthy. He's the creator. All of us are here and we live and breathe and have our being because he says so period. But when God's in control, 
Look at what happens in the middle of Esther. It was a time of happiness and joy and gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, feasting and celebration. Many of the people of other nationalities came, became Jews because of the fear of the Jews had seized them. They see this thing that's going on with God. People who don't know God and who have no hope in this life look to the Jews and go like, oh, wow, like, you have a real God behind your life. Like, show us who this person is. And they're able to walk those people into an understanding of who God is. And then there's feasting and happiness and joy that flows through the land. Do you know how many more feasts there are in the Jewish religion than there are fasts? The Jewish people, it's kind of a joke. We, our realtor is this Jewish dude. And, uh, and he's always laughing. He has like this saying. I forget exactly how it goes, but he talks about like all of these different kind of like expressions of knowing God. And he's basically like, when in doubt, the Jews just feast. It's like, <laughs> that's just what we do. You know, it's like, feels like there's a feast every other day. And why is that? It's because the life that God has for society and for people is not one of like, you know? <laughs> and so... He is the God of the impossible. And so when we see stuff in our life that looks pretty impossible, or when we see stuff that's going on in our nation, are we any different than the rest of the people out there that are like, oh my gosh, what is going on? Is there any good that comes ever? Are we done? I'm moving to Canada. Is that our response? If it is, you need to repent. You need to change the way you think. Because that is a faithless response. That is a perspective that is overwhelmed by what you see around you, not what you see in the Bible, not who God is, because God is the impossible. Consistently, he does the supernatural. And it's because he is this that we have hope that doesn't make any sense. I have not been devastated by the elections. I have not been devastated by watching the news lately. Not because there's not crazy stuff going on in the world. Probably the easiest way to get faithless is to watch CNN. I mean, it is just like, it should be called the bad news, right? Like Jesus comes with the good news, CNN's the bad news. It's crazy, like everything that you watch on there is some bad news story. And man, like, I'll be sitting there and I can just feel my perspective and my heart shifting, you know? Where like the first news story, you're like, oh man, things are really bad. And then you watch the next one, you're like, oh wow, like in that place, it's bad too. And then like, after a while, you're just like, you can't see God anymore. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like if you, if you look at it like a picture, there's, a, there's this vantage and this is my vantage, and this is how I see. And I come, and I'm like spending time in the Word, and I'm meditating on truth, and this much of my vantage is kingdom stuff. I'm full of faith. I come out of my quiet time and hanging out with God. I come out of church in my worship service. I'm like, dude, I'm like the disciples, the 12. I'm going to go and destroy the works of the devil today. <laughs> and there's like, there's, like this, there's like this little sliver over here that's like, I hope, right? 
And then as you go through life and you do work and you like have a hard conversation with your boss or whatever, and then you come home and you watch CNN, and then you like, you know, you know where I'm going, you know what I'm talking about. By the end of the day, you're like, is anything good in the world? I'm just going to go read Ecclesiastes. <laughs> meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. It's like, where did your perspective in God go? What happened? What happened? So I, I want to challenge this, man. Like, we have to have a different perspective because there's this whole X factor behind everything that we have in front of us and that we see that makes everything different. There's this X factor that's behind the scene that we've seen in the Bible and in our own personal lives show up in time and need and do the impossible consistently. That's what faith is. That's what, what is faith? What is faith? It's, it's believing that God is who he says he is and believing that as we earnestly seek him, he will reward those who do that. That he can, in a minute, prompt the heart of the most powerful person in the world and shift the world in a minute. Yeah. Is that too small for him? We'd see differently in Cyrus, right? Is it too small to him to send a deliverer into the most powerful nation on earth to release the people of God? In this case, it's the Exodus? No. Can he bring salvation to the entire earth through the death of his son in a moment, his ways are just, they're just not our ways. His ways are just so much greater than we could ever imagine. And literally, the life that we've been called into as Christians, as ones who believe, as ones who stand on that truth, is you get to see him again and again show up as in the impossible God that he says he is, and you go, oh my gosh, I thought I knew that you were the God that worked the impossible, and now I know it more. And then you step into a deeper measure, and the problem gets bigger. And you go, oh man, I wonder if you're the God of the impossible of this bigger problem. You're like, oh my gosh, you are. And then your problem gets bigger, right? Like, the Bible's pretty clear. It doesn't mean that we, there's tough times, there's tough times everywhere. And the life that we get to live is where our faith just grows and grows and grows to the point where we just like, we're just unshakable. There's no part of our house that's left that's built on the sand anymore. The storm comes and it takes down a wing of my house and I'm like, oh man, I thought, I thought that wing was on the rock. I thought that, ring was built, that, that wing of my house was built on the love of God. And the fact that he can do the impossible in any situation, but it just crumbled, so clearly it wasn't. Wow. And oftentimes, the response in faith and faithlessness, it looks pretty similar until a storm comes, and then your response tells you everything that you need. And so let's just take this opportunity to, to remember. And, you know, in Israel's history, it was really cool. Every time they'd see God do something crazy, they'd either have a feast and like dedicate that time of the year to that thing, or they'd set up like a pile of rocks or some kind of memorial that anytime they'd walk by it, they'd go like, oh yeah, do you remember when God did that thing? That was crazy. Or the kids would walk by and they'd be like, mommy and daddy, why is there a pile of rocks there? 
and they'd be like, this was awesome. Let me tell you about this time, right? But like, God encourages us throughout the Bible to live a life like that. We should have like feasts in our life. (laughs) This is funny. This is how I keep you guys coming back. It's like, eat, feast. No, I'm just kidding. But like, there should, why don't we have feasts in our life for times when God's shown up? Right? Like, I was super broke. And God did the impossible. He forgave my massive debt. I'm going to have a feast every year on this day. I'm going to have a feast. For the rest of my life, I'm going to remember what God did on this day. Why don't we do that? Be too many feasting. That's okay. But seriously, we need these moments of remembrance because we need moments like this where we go, I need to remind you of who God is. Remember who God is? Awesome. Let's go live with hope. Let's go live unshakable. Let's go live like we have something different going on in our lives rather than just being taken down by the things that we see around us. All right, let's worship. Worship team, come on up. Suki's going to share some stuff. Can we have some feasts? Somebody, somebody declare. So, so you know what happened? This is kind of cool. I'm just going to take one second. So um, do you guys remember maybe like a couple months ago, I had a sermon where I said, we should make shirts that say never-ending surrender. Do you guys remember that? Somebody heard it on a podcast and sent me a shirt that says never-ending surrender. (laughs) It's my favorite shirt. So so for the person who sent it to me, thank you on the podcast. I love it. I wore it yesterday, and it was awesome. So um, I love what Ryan was sharing I did want to acknowledge, though, if there is grief and it's taking you a little longer, I don't want there to be like a heap of condemnation on you that, man, now I need to repent like yesterday. I do want to say what this is is an encouragement, though. I feel like the Lord is speaking. Um, and we, I felt like even in, in intercession, the thing that God has been consistently encouraging us is like, look, look at the bigger picture. I think it's really, I think what Ryan spoke was really true. I think the way that what's around us will frame things is, this is all bad. And I think very rarely, if there is a real God, can anything ever be all bad. There will be, there is good in it all, and good will come out of it. And I believe that is the hope that we can have in the midst of however we are looking and interpreting any situation. And so I want to just speak that grace, that that's really our heart in this. It's not to say that if there is grief that, you know, it's not valid. But I think the whole point is that in hard times, that is the perfect moment for us to lift our eyes up and to really pursue and to see God. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we're not supposed to call a tragic moment a tragic moment. Right? Like, when the Jews are being persecuted under the Babylonian rule, nobody ever says, like, hey, that's a small deal. Like, no big deal. Right? The bigger the thing that's going on in your life, the more faith it requires to have the perspective that I'm talking about. And so there's a journey that goes along with all of this. What I wanted to do is define the destination. This is where we're called to live. This is where we're called to live. So if there's a journey, let there be a journey. But this is where you're supposed to live as a person of God. 
This is your home. You get to live in a place where you know and trust a God that does supernatural things, does more than you could ever ask or imagine. And so even if you're going in the journey through it, like remember your home is the point here and that you'll, you'll be here again soon if you're not there now. And so let's pray into that accordingly. And let's invite the God of the supernatural to do some supernatural stuff. So let's stand together. You know, one of the things that struck me as we, were, as we were praying these prayers, I always love these prayers because they challenge my faith every time we pray them. You know, it's like, these are meant to cast vision for what God can do in a community, a family, a city, or amongst a group of friends. Yeah, I'm pointing at a black screen now. <laughs> there were our weekly prayers up there. But the point of those prayers every week is, one, there's, a power, there's power in prayer and us coming together and doing it, but it's also a reminder of us, not just challenge us, let it be a reminder of us every week of like, oh, wow, like when God shows up in a major way, this is what it can look like. And so let's just pray into that. God, we thank you that your ways are so much higher than our ways. God, we thank you that you are the supernatural God that can step into any situation. And God, that you can bring goodness. God, you say that all things work together for those for the good of those who are called according to your purposes, God. And so, God, we just say, Lord, that if it doesn't look good right now, Lord, that's just because we're in the journey. And God, even when it's bad, Lord, what we ask is we ask for strength of conviction. We ask for a resolve in our spirit, God. We ask for strong faith of who you are based upon who we've seen you to be and who we know you to be, God, that you are this God that can swoop in even in the most dire of moments and you can bring your kingdom. You can bring, you can bring a breaking to the back of poverty. You can bust the chains of injustice. God, you can use anyone at any time to bring prosperity to a land. In our thinking, you need just the right person. You need even like better than King David to bring what we want to see into the land. God, but in your kingdom, Cyrus will do. That is crazy. Even darkness is light to you, it says in the Psalms. Nothing can stop you, God. Even darkness is light to you, God. And so we just ask, God, that you would expand our faith, God, that our vantage, that our vision, God, of who you are and how excellent you are and how easily you can bust in on the scene, God, that it would expand to the place where it fuels our intercession and it fuels our place of peace, where we can stand in a place of peace even in times of turmoil, and we can trust you deeply. So we celebrate who you are, God. We remember who you are in this time, and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship.